Welcome back to the third and final part of our COVID-19 special episode. We're talking about COVID therapies. Our guest specialists are Dr. Matthew O'Sullivan, ID specialist from Westmead Hospital, Dr. George Zhao from Westmead Hospital ICU, Professor Sanjay Swaminathan, Head of Department of Westmead and Blacktown Hospital Immunology and Allergy Department, and Dr. James Tadros from Nepean ED. Our paper is called Remdesivir for the Treatment of COVID-19 by Ansems et al. It was published in the Cochrane Library in Issue 8 of 2021, and it's going to be presented by Dr. Ali Syed, Intensive Care Registrar at Westmead Hospital. Ali? Thank you. So just a bit of preamble about remdesivir. Remdesivir is a small molecule prodrug that inhibits viral replication via its inhibition on the RNA polymerase. In terms of where it stands worldwide, in Australia, it's been provisionally approved by the TGA for its use in COVID-19. In the US, it's actually not been approved by the FDA, however, has received an emergency authorization use. I think the European Medicines Agency has approved its use for patients requiring low flow, high flow, or NIV. And in fact, the WHO recommends against its use for patients with COVID-19. Theory behind using remdesivir is really in the early stages of COVID, in particular COVID pneumonitis, where it stands by reducing the viral load and therefore preventing or augmenting the inflammatory response, with its effect being less clear in the later stages of COVID pneumonitis, where the hyperinflammatory response is mainly immune mediated, so via your CD4 and CD8 cells. This study, as previously stated, was mostly a systemic review. Its inclusion criteria were primarily randomized control trials, including cluster randomized ones, with using a wide variety of search engines to identify all the necessary studies, with language actually not being a barrier and not an exclusion criteria. They've excluded all the non-randomized trials, as well as observational, in vivo, and in vitro studies. All their participants were patients with confirmed COVID essentially, and no exclusion being set on the setting, gender, et cetera. And the interventions were looking at remdesivir versus placebo or standard care. They had a predefined outcome list and most of the statistical analysis was basically referred back to the Cochrane Handbook for Systemic Reviews and Interventions. So the primary outcomes were really looking at all cause mortality, up to day 60 in some of the studies. Changes in clinical status with improvements being defined as liberation or duration to liberation for mechanical ventilation or supplemental O2 and worsening clinical status being defined as a new need for NIV mechanical ventilation, vasopressor requirements, et cetera, as well as adverse events. They also had additional outcomes that they attempted to look at which included the need for dialysis, quality of life, need for ICU length of stay. And I'll preemptively mention that these were not analyzed as there weren't sufficient data or no data for them to basically perform any analysis on. So in terms of the number of studies that they've identified, 922 records were identified, which they quickly whittled down to just five studies most of which were excluded because they were duplicates, they were non-randomized trials, or they considered combination therapies of remdesivir with another agent versus placebo. The five studies that they looked at were the BAGEL study in the New England Journal, also known as the ACT-1 trial, which had about 1,000 patients, the SPINNER trial in 2020, which had about 600 patients, WANG in 2020 with 230, the Solidarity Trial, which was by far the largest, with over 5,000 patients, and the Mahajan Trial in 2021, with 82 patients. Three of the studies were open-label randomized trials, which looked at remdesivir versus standard control. Two of them were double-blinded and placebo-controlled. Those were the Bagel and the Wong study. Three of these studies were multinational and multicenter. One was multicenter in China, and one was a single center study in, in India. 
In total, they had over 7,000 patients analyzed with over 3,800 participants receiving remdesivir. Where possible and methodologies were homogenous enough, they would pool these data into a meta-analysis. However, the vast majority of presented analyses were, they were unable to analyze and were presented in a narrative fashion. A lot of the heterogeneity of the assessment and the effectiveness of the trials were performed using a chi-square test, as well as a visual assessment of the forest plot. All these studies had very significant different primary outcomes. So for example, the ACT-1 looked at the time to recovery, which I'll get back to later on. The Solidarity looked at all-cause mortality. The Wang trial looked at time to improvement at day 28. The Spinner looked at clinical status at day 11 and so forth. So it was quite a challenge to compare all the different groups. And as a result, like I said, a lot of this was narrative-based rather than actual statistical analysis. So the most important, I guess, outcome to look at was the all-cause mortality, which they looked at four studies with over 7,000 patients and essentially stated that remdesivir makes little to no difference at 28 days, which they described as moderate certainty. This also included all-cause mortality at hospital discharge with no significant difference between the various groups. In terms of duration to liberation from non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation. These were mostly based on two studies that were very different from one another. And as a result, were described in a narrative fashion. So they looked at the Bagel study, which had a difference of 17 in the remdesivir versus 20 days in a control group, as well as the Wang, which was seven days versus 15 days respectively. And both of those were non-significant and deemed low certainty in terms of evidence. Duration to liberation from supplemental O2, once again, was based on those two main trials and was based on very low certainty evidence and with no significant difference between them. In terms of clinical changes, the new need for non-invasive or mechanical ventilation was primarily based on three with over 6,000 patients. It's important to note that when you look at the data, all of these subgroups had actually fewer event rates per thousand but none of these were statistically significant and were again based on very low certainties, primarily because of a significant risk of bias. A lot of these studies, including non-blinded patients, personnel and assessors, as well as very imprecise definitions in terms of what was included and what wasn't included in the study. One of the important points to mention, and I think one of the issues that keeps getting raised with COVID is the duration of hospital stay or time to discharge from hospital. So two studies looked at these. The first one was the ACT-1 trial by Bagel, which actually showed a significant difference in time to recovery, which was defined as the first day after enrollment on which patients were deemed fit for discharge or met a pre-specified clinical criteria which they basically arranged in an ordinal scale. So with one being very well patient with no issues, three being hospitalized without oxygen requirement, and eight being basically death. And essentially any patients that met the criteria of one to three, that would be their time to recovery. Now this was considered statistically significant, and there was a difference of five days, median five days between the two arms. However, when one looks at the time to hospital discharge, it was 12 days in the remdesivir versus 17 days in the placebo group. And for some reason, I actually could not find any statistical analysis, and I'm actually not sure whether they were statistically significant. It's not mentioned in the papers at all, which I would have thought they would if it was significant. They've also had a number of subgroup analysis, which included the timing of first dose with illness onset, this was only the bagel study, and that was commented on that there may be a benefit of early initiation of remdesivir compared to placebo. However, this had a very, very large confidence interval and was once again not deemed significant. In terms of their bottom line discussions, they've mentioned that their findings are mostly consistent with other studies that have been published, both meta-analyses and systemic reviews. However, they found it very challenging to interpret them in the appropriate context, because there was such a difference in terms of study protocol, methodology, 
other subgroups being analyzed and the inclusion of non-randomized control trials. There was only one systemic review that suggested an improved mortality with remdesivir. However, this only included the BAGEL study and the Wang study, as well as a simulated two-arm study, which hadn't been published. And as a result said that their comment could not be substantiated. If I could mention three bottom lines based on the analysis of this study. So based on what has been presented here, remdesivir likely has no or very limited effect on heart outcomes, in particular mortality. It does not appear to reduce hospital length of stay, or at least we don't have sufficient evidence to suggest it does affect hospital length of stay. And unfortunately, all of the outcomes were based on low certainty evidence and whether we will actually be receiving more evidence uh, is unclear because I think we just don't have any more clinical equipoise anymore. We're not gonna have isolated remdesivir study arms uh, and most patients would probably be getting combination therapy. Thank you for that summary, Ali. And I agree, it does look like the, the data was a little bit difficult in terms of significant heterogeneity. And it, it seemed that with the confidence intervals crossing the null for the majority of the outcomes that were assessed, it, it didn't seem that there was, they were able to make much by way of statistically significant conclusions. I'll pose this question to you, but I'd also love uh, Dr. O'Sullivan and Dr. Zhao to weigh in. What are the implications of this paper on clinical practice? And do we have enough evidence yet to know whether remdesivir is a useful intervention? I mean, I think the take-home message is that the, you know, the benefit of remdesivir is likely to be pretty marginal. So, you know, it's not a wonder drug. And yeah, obviously there's different conclusions about the impact, particularly on, on mortality. I, I guess um, it's it, with a meta-analysis quite difficult, you know, because of the heterogeneity, but also, you know, just looking at the sort of types of trials that these were. So the, the ACT-1 study, which was the, um, you know, the main trial that showed benefit um, was a registration study run by the drug company, you know, the usual sort of very strict kind of criteria and strict study procedures that go along with a study like that. Whereas the solidarity study is more of a, a real world study run by the WHO. They weren't, you know, capturing as many data points, uh, you know, it's open label uh, and those sorts of um those sorts of aspects. So, um, and although it is a much larger study and they were really concentrating on the outcome of mortality, a lot of that is to do with the pragmatic um, sort of reasons that, it, you know, the, the data collection is a lot harder in those sorts of contexts uh, of that kind of study. I mean, I guess rather than analyze them in a, a sort of meta-analysis when you combine sort of very different studies together and you often, you know, often the way with these sort of Cochrane reviews, you end up, um, with uh, a sort of um, inconclusive result. I think it kind of is better to sort of concentrate and analyze the two, all those two studies in particular in more detail. The, I mean, what does seem clear is that the benefit, if there is one, is not constant, obviously, across disease severities. And if there is a benefit, it's likely to be, a, a, you know, a, a subset of patients who are most likely to receive that benefit. So the ACT study suggested that certainly if you're not receiving oxygen, um, you don't benefit once you're on low flow oxygen. That does, that's where they recorded the, the um, highest benefit. And once you're on high flow oxygen or, or mechanical ventilation, then there was no benefit. So, it, and I guess, um, you know, what that's probably reflecting is that there are people earlier on in the illness when they still have uh, a degree of viral replication. Because what we know about viral replication, it's actually highest, you know, prior to people um, becoming unwell. Um, you know, at the, at the point of symptom onset is really when it's higher, or even in the 24 hours before symptom onset. So it's gonna have, um, you know, the biggest impact on viral replication at that point. Um, so I guess the question then is, well, why isn't it a benefit in people even earlier on, you know, those who weren't on, oxygen to start with and I think the answer to that is just that you know the majority of people who are not receiving oxygen are going to do very well anyway without any drugs and if you are able to identify 
though, you know, if you, if you gave it to those who had the highest risk of progression um, in that really early phase, um, then, and you know, that study hasn't been done, but if you did that, you may well find that that's actually where you get the biggest bang for, for your buck, starting at very early in those who have the highest risk of progression to ICU and death, um, even before they're receiving oxygen. Um, but, um, you know, that, that sort of hasn't been done. If it was an oral agent, that study would have been done by now because, um, you know, administrating it as um, sort of preemptive therapy or early therapy as an oral agent um, uh, when they're, you know, during the phase where there is high viral replication, you know, that's, that's I guess, the magic bullet that everyone's looking for an antiviral to give orally at that point in time. And there are some that are being developed, and, um, but unfortunately remdesivir um, has to be given intravenously. Yeah, so look, I, I think of all the treatment modalities we have, remdesivir is probably the one that has the least impact, um, but it was the one that was available first. And, and, and in fact, right now there's a, a major shortage. Um, it's more of a supply chain issue and logistics issue rather than a true um, shortage, I think. But um, New South Wales only, well, Westmead Hospital doesn't even have enough remdesivir to give all the patients we have um, in on it today at the moment. Um, so it's a bit of a crisis management situation. Um, and, and New South Wales only has supply for one or two days um, for all the patients in New South Wales. Although um, we are supposedly getting some more, hopefully within the next 24 hours or so. Um, it comes from the national stockpile. Um, so Australia buys all the, so the federal government buys all the remdesivir um, from the drug company on behalf of all of the states. So it's a bit different to other, other drugs, um, the way that distribution of other drugs work. And in fact, it's supplied to the states for free from the federal government. So uh, yeah, New South Wales doesn't, doesn't pay for it separately in the same way that we normally would. Um, so that, that's how it's coming through. And the national stockpile hasn't been releasing as much remdesivir to us as usual. Again, as I said, because of supply chain issues, but hopefully that'll be sorted out. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the other drugs that we use would probably have uh, a much uh, higher impact on progression and mortality than, than remdesivir does. Uh, but, I, you know, I think there is some benefit in that subgroup who are low flow oxygen overall. You know, the solidarity study, if you look at that, you know, being the other big study that didn't show the mortality benefit, if you have a look at their subgroup analyses, you know, there's clearly... A, a trend towards the, that group who are on oxygen but not on mechanical ventilation, having the, the best new benefit. Um, and, uh, and again, they didn't separate between low flow oxygen and high flow oxygen in their study. And then perhaps if they did, um, you know, they may have um, seen a, a statistical uh, significant benefit in that low flow oxygen group, which is what was found in the ACT-1 study. I think Matt's pretty much sum, summarised all the literature and I think that's probably reflected in the living guidelines for Australia as well to consider using remdesivir early on people who are not admitted to ICU. I mean, biologically plausible treatment, but probably a lot of the same issues as oseltamivir had when we had influenza. So very similar picture. Overseas, they've used favipiravir, Avigan, and that is an oral agent with very similar results to remdesivir, essentially no effect on outcome. So, you know, I mean, it's the same as trying to take blood cultures before having a fever when the load is the highest. You're never going to catch it, I think. I think the other way to look at this treatment from an ICU perspective is what harm it does as well. And given the very low incidence of some LFT dysfunction and almost nothing else in a pandemic, it's probably worthwhile to give it to these patients who might have a benefit. And it's really too hard to determine in, you know, one year whether that's worthwhile or not. But for me as an intensivist, I think if there's no significant downside, I would just continue it. Of course, if patients get admitted straight to intensive care, then, you know, theoretically the biological plausibility loses its value and there's not much role there. But for patients who have started it, there's probably a role to finish the course and get some effect from it. Thank you. Both of your comments actually sort of lead me very nicely to my next question. Is it the virus or is it the immune response that kills patients with COVID-19? And could there be a role for 
very early remdesivir treatment in the future, perhaps um, at points where people are diagnosed before they're symptomatic? I won't pretend to know as much immunology as Sanjay does, but, you know, all of the treatments are now targeting that massive immune response that is getting generated by COVID. And there's probably a discussion that goes into tocilizumab, cerilumab, and baricitinib, which are our workhorses for patients who have severe disease now. The initial feeling early on was, you know, that there was this massive inflammatory response which caused lung disease, um, and that sort of tied in with all of these vascular manifestations we saw as well. So, you know, the IL-6 cascade really activates a lot of vascular um, complications and clot cascades. So we were seeing a lot of PEs and a lot of clots as well, especially in the lungs and, you know, autopsies were seeing microthrombi everywhere. And now that we've started using, you know, these immune blockers, IL-6, um, the JAK-2, and also IL-1 overseas and Akinra, we're seeing a lot less vascular complications, which sort of proves that we're probably on the right track to treating this disease. The evidence certainly for tocilizumab and the IL-6 inhibitors is pretty robust for now. And especially in the ICU population, it's pretty robust. So I, th I think to answer your question, what we initially thought was going to be something similar to influenza has probably turned out to be more of an inflammatory lung disease, um, which has been activated by COVID. And the treatments now are certainly geared towards that. Unfortunately, we, one of the things we don't know is the medium to long-term effects of some of the treatments that we're doing, as well as the medium to long-term effects even of COVID. So, you know, we only have data for patients who are like one year post-COVID and there's some pretty debilitating restrictive lung disease and lung damage that's long-term. And having more long-term data will probably give us an idea, but Obviously, we can't um, use that retrospectively for those patients. Dr. Swami, now I think that you have some insights. Uh, yeah, look, in terms of your original question, is it the virus or the immune response? It's clearly both. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, you wouldn't, wouldn't have the immune response without the virus. But it's, it's the abnormal immune response that's probably driving the more serious complications that are occurring, particularly the ARDS. And it's interesting if you go back to that Cochrane review. So it's looking at remdesivir by itself. But the treatments have obviously moved on to just not just remdesivir, but remdesivir plus baricitinib plus other sort of immune modulators. And, and, and that's a slightly different question. And Matt's all over this more than I am. But, uh, he, you know, there are New England Journal papers looking at the combination of remdesivir and baricitinib. Uh, and, and they clearly show benefit over remdesivir by itself. So it's, it's interesting because the way this is going is that it's looking at targeting the virus, but also looking at immune pathways as well. And maybe the combination actually offers us the best window of better outcomes in terms of in the future. So the other interesting thing from an immunology point of view is, is considering why, why do older people do worse than, say, younger people? And it goes to sort of innate responses, adaptive immune responses, but young people, particularly kids, but even, you know, going into the 20s and 30s, but they're able to turn off their immune system uh, much better to coronaviruses than older people who have this sustained immune response. Uh, and and that's, that's the thing that tends to kill people. It's that, you know, sustained inflammatory loop that keeps on happening. So, so I think the future is in terms of Actually, that's probably a different question, but in terms of how, 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 do we, how do we control the immune response? How can we actually, you know, even at diagnosis, do things to sort of prevent uh, disease progression? So it's an interesting area. Dr. O'Sullivan, that actually segues really nicely into a bit of a broader discussion around COVID therapies. I guess the common phrase these days is triple therapy for COVID-19. I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of an outline of what the treatment protocols at that present are for COVID and I guess which patients are appropriate for which level of treatment? Yeah, the triple therapy that, that we talk about, and it's sort of, uh, I don't know entirely where that came from, it's that there's three drugs that we do use it's, uh, um, routinely in a lot of the patients. It sort of stems from the fact that the treatments 
that we initiate all tend to have the same trigger for initiation, which is patients requiring oxygen. And so the three treatments are the remdesivir that we've mentioned, but then also dexamethasone and an immunomodulator, which the sort of immunomodulator of choice in those patients who are less unwell is baricitinib at the moment. The baricitinib being the immunomodulator, and that's a Janus kinase, a JAK inhibitor, but it works you know, in the same pathway as tocilizumab being an IL-6 receptor blocker. So, you know, that's all part of the JAK-STAT pathway. Uh, and so there's um, obviously some um, commonality in, in the mechanism of action between baricitinib and tocilizumab. And indeed, cerulumab, which is the other um, uh, tocilizumab-like drug that um, we sometimes use. Really, the main reason that baricitinib is the standard choice is, is really just availability more than anything else. So tocilizumab is an extremely short supply. So we favour baricitinib. But there is overlap of, of evidence. Uh, having said that, you know, it, it, obviously they haven't been uh, compared directly in clinical trials, but if you look at the studies for baricitinib, there's perhaps an impression that it's of more benefit a little bit earlier than with the benefit for tocilizumab uh, in that, um, you know, those on oxygen uh, of any kind um, up to the point of ICU admission seem to have the best effect with baricitinib, whereas for tocilizumab, the, the highest effect. While the, the actual um, uh, you know, risk reduction was similar across all groups, but in terms of reduction in mortality, but obviously those in, in ICU and on ventilation have the highest mortality, and so the, the net effect is, is greater there for tocilizumab. So, so yeah, the triple therapy then, as I said, remdesivir, dexamethasone, and uh, the immunomodulatory trope baricitinib or tocilizumab, depending on uh, the context. The dexamethasone, you know, that was, I guess, the next sort of big impact finding on in COVID treatment after the sort of initial remdesivir studies. Um, the, the dexamethasone data, a lot of that came from the recovery trial, which is a big UK trial uh, multi-platform study. And um, yeah, I think it's what's well, first positive report was on the um, benefit of dexamethasone in patients with COVID who were hospitalised. Interestingly, if you look at the subgroup analysis in that study, the benefit was started to be seen once people did require oxygen, as I've said, but then was seen throughout all of the severity groups beyond that, so high flow oxygen and non-invasive ventilation and mechanical ventilation as well as a benefit for dexamethasone. Interestingly, in the group that weren't requiring oxygen, there was a trend towards harm with dexamethasone in that group. And it's interesting to speculate whether or not that's due to the fact that it was that if you give it early on in the disease, you might enhance viral replication, or whether it's just because non-specific or untargeted dexamethasone effects. You know, obviously, um, uh, you know, it's it's uh, drug with side effects and, and harm potentially in people who don't need it. Um, so uh, that might be um, the reason for that. But yeah, it does sort of bring you back to this idea of the stages of the disease, where early on you get the viral replication, and then you get the subsequent immune-mediated pathology, which is, you know, really what's making people sick and uh, and causing the um, morbidity and mortality. So, yeah, in general, because the benefit of these drugs all seems to start once people receive oxygen, the default is that we do start those three medications on people who are starting treatment. Yeah, obviously there's some, uh, you know, contraindications or precautions with some of the drugs. We have to check, uh, you know, renal function, for example, and dose reduced for, for paracetamol. Um, and we can't give it for people whose EGFR is less than 15, so not everybody will receive it in that um, uh, situation. Uh, we can't use it in pregnancy, for example, either. So we, we can give tocilizumab in pregnancy, though. So we substitute tocilizumab for paracetamol in pregnancy. The other precaution is liver function tests, particularly with remdesivir. There have been some reports of quite markedly elevated LFTs and hepatitis, um, drug-induced hepatitis from remdesivir. And the uh, at least the Act one study excluded people whose baseline LFTs were greater than five times the upper limit of normal. And COVID does often cause raised LFT. So um, based on that, there are quite a few patients with COVID who uh, are ineligible for MDSU because of those LFT abnormalities.
So that, that's, I guess, the summary that um, triple therapy is the sort of default treatment that we're using at the moment anyway um, in patients who are hospitalised with COVID on oxygen. Thanks for that summary, Dr. O'Sullivan. Um, I guess that, that helps to sort of keep it simple. So uh, people who aren't on oxygen don't get any of the three. People who are on oxygen are eligible for really all three. I know that when you've started someone on baricitinib, they don't then recommend that you switch to another immunomodulator once if the patient was to deteriorate and require mechanical ventilation. Is baricitinib or tocilizumab plus remdesivir better than baricitinib or tocilizumab on its own? Do we have that data yet? No, we haven't got the data. So Sanjay mentioned that, I mean, the main baricitinib study, uh, everybody in that study also got remdesivir. Um, so we don't really have much data on baricitinib on its own. And now uh, there are some other, so, so baricitinib is now an arm in the recovery study that I mentioned. So it hasn't reported on baricitinib yet, but it's prescribing baricitinib um, in an open label fashion, you know, as a study drug, um, in addition to what is standard of care now in the, in the UK in the recovery study. So that will include tocilizumab and remdesivir and dexamethasone, of course. So, so we'll get some information uh, perhaps on the combination of baricitinib and tocilizumab from that study. But so far, combinations of immunomodulators haven't been reported on yet. Um, the, the, main reason, the main reason we have that recommendation to not um, switch from baricitinib to tocilizumab um, is really a supply issue with tocilizumab more than anything else. So as you know, um, tocilizumab it's used in sort of rheumatological conditions and to treat cytokine storm and things like GVHD. You know, they were fairly boutique indications. And so the, the global supply of tocilizumab prior to COVID wasn't really set up to manufacture large numbers of doses. So there's a worldwide shortage of tocilizumab as a result. And of course, we do want to quarantine some doses for those non-COVID indications um, for those who need it. And really, we're just faced with an extreme shortage of tocilizumab as a result. So one of the strategies to try and use it appropriately was was that we don't use we don't switch from one immunomodulator to uh, another um, so we don't go from baricitinib to tocilizumab and we don't use the two together uh, prior to the very very acute shortage which we have now we were doing that occasionally so occasionally patients who did progress on, on baricitinib who ended up in ICU would get a dose of tocilizumab but um, yeah we've just really restricted that now because of the shortage um, but yeah it's not clear whether that's the right thing to do or it's the wrong thing to do because there's no evidence the literature to guide us there but yeah hopefully the recovery study will um, give us a bit of insight into that question it's not studied specifically but just because of the trial design they will have people who have received tocilizumab and then started baricitinib and vice versa and uh, and so that will hopefully give us some insights Dr. O'Sullivan, I have a question for you with regard to the pre-immunomodulatory screen that's required to start a number of these drugs in emergency we have a bit of difficulty sometimes when we're either taking bloods in the back of an ambulance or the nursing staff who are very kind generously take bloods for us prior to seeing a patient. How necessary is it to have the entire pre-immunomodulatory screen complete before starting drugs like baricitinib? Is there an opportunity to do that maybe a few hours after starting that kind of medication? Would you prefer that be delayed in the absence of having TB tubes down in ED or something similar? The pre-immunomodulatory screen you refer to um, is still for chronic infections that might be exacerbated by uh, the immunosuppressive effect of um, these um, immunomodulatory drugs, but also including dexamethasone um, potentially. And uh, I mean, hepatitis B is, is particularly important, but hepatitis B markers aren't going to change after you've given the immunomodulatory drug. So it's fine to actually take the hepatitis B serology afterwards. But um, the problem, of course, is the, the quantifuron test that you mentioned, A, because it's the most difficult test to take because you need the special tubes, you need to take four different tubes. You also need to make sure it's done properly in the sense that, you know, each tube should only have one mil of blood in it and the vacuum is calibrated to just take one mil um, and then you have to coat the tubes with the blood after you've taken them 
I mean, it's simple. You just need to invert them and shake them, um, decode the insides of the tubes. But it's a bit finicky, and the, and the problem is um, one of invalid results from the quantiferon assay if it's not collected properly. But the other concern is that, um, so the way the quantiferon study works, one of those tubes is um, what we call a mitogen control. So it measures the, the ability for uh, a person's immune system to make um, uh, interferon gamma in response to a mitogen because so what the TB quantiferon um, is measuring is the interferon production in response to the TB antigens as a marker of cell-mediated immunity against tuberculosis. And, of course, if someone has an immune um, defect, then they may not be able to produce cell-mediated immunity against anything. And so we have this mitogen control just to show that that individual can make an immune response. If they don't make an immune response to the mitogen control, you end up with an invalid result as well. Um, so the upshot is that it's theoretically possible that if you take the quantiferon test after someone's been commenced on um, dexamethasone or um, baricitinib or tocilizumab, that it may impair their mitogen response and lead to an invalid test. So the optimal time to take it is before they're given those drugs and that's sort of why we encourage it to be done prior. But yeah, there are logistical challenges that you've outlined with that. Um, my gut feeling is that if you take it within a few hours after, particularly baricitinib, you know, it probably doesn't make a lot of difference. I don't know what, Sanjay, whether you think how critical it is, the timing of the collection of the quantiferon in relation to the first dose of baricitinib and or dexamethasone. But I'd be interested in, in your comments because I guess you probably um, have more of an understanding of it than I do. It's interesting, Matt. We, we have a lot of patients on immune suppression and I, I suppose it comes down to the pharmacokinetics of, of the drug, how quickly it's, uh, it gets into the system, how quickly it starts doing its job. I, I'm guessing you're right in terms of within a few hours of having the baricitinib. I, I doubt that it would actually affect you know, immune function that quickly. The steroids, you know, they work actually reasonably quickly, you know, and we've, we've found even starting, you know, modest doses of steroids can really interfere with the assay. So I, I suppose um, we'd have to watch this space, but it, it is it is useful, I suppose, in our population in Western Sydney, we get a reasonable proportion who, who come up positive on the quantiferon gold. But uh, I, I haven't quite worked it out yet, Matt, you can tell me as well that, you know, if we do the screen at the start, we get a positive after two or three days because it take, does, takes that long to get a result back. Do we stop the medications if it comes back with a gold? I'm guessing that's a yes. It depends on a little bit on the clinical circumstances. So what we've done so far, we haven't actually necessarily stopped, but what we've done is monitored very carefully to look for any evidence of active tuberculosis. And it is a bit of a risk versus harm equation. But as you say, because of our demographics, many individuals will have been exposed to, to TB in their, in their lifetime. So we are actually now treating for COVID. And so, yeah, if we find that they, they've got a positive quantiferon during the period of time that they're in hospital, with COVID, we monitor carefully uh, and look for any evidence of active TB. Of course, we don't well, we don't start um, treatment for latent TB, largely because we need to exclude active TB before we start treatment for latent TB. Because treatment for latent TB is monotherapy with isoniazid or rifampicin generally. If someone has active TB and you give them monotherapy, then you can promote um, resistance and, and potentially development of multidrug resistant TB. So, um, so it is important to carefully exclude active TB in anyone that you're planning to give treatment for latent TB to. And it's not really possible to carefully exclude latent TB in somebody um, who's on a COVID ward because one of the main ways you do that is to get induced buta from the patient. It's an infection control challenge in someone who's got COVID. So the strategy so far um, has been to monitor carefully, not necessarily stop the immunomodulator, but um, you know do a risk assessment and then uh, follow them up after they've been de-isolated from COVID to look for any evidence of active TB at that point and then um, decide whether or not they should have treatment for latent TB there but generally if they've been given you know a, a whack of immunosuppressive therapy and they uh, have and you've excluded active TB afterwards if they've got um, evidence of latent TB then um, it, it probably would um, require treatment for latent TB for most of those of course we're still not quite at that point for the majority of our patients yet because 
we haven't started to see them in the follow-up clinic yet, but we will be doing that. It sounds like we just need to adapt our practices in emergency, then try as best as we can to get these pre-immunomodulatory tests. But if we can't get them prior to starting therapy for whatever reason, it's not the end of the world. It's just something that needs to be done uh, with as short an, an interval as possible. I'm aware of the kind of up and coming sotrovimab therapy as well. Um, it's obviously used for people with kind of early disease or uh, that are at risk of severe disease. Maybe you might be able to shed some light on what our role in emergency can be for these patients. Do we do do we call idea about every patient with high blood pressure that comes in with COVID? Yeah, so sotrovimab is interesting. It's a monoclonal antibody against a region of the spike protein of, of coronaviruses, and not, not just COVID actually. So um, theoretically, it would work for the original SARS as well um, because it's a conserved region between those viruses. Although it's been given emergency use authorization by the TGA in Australia, and we're now um, you know using the drug. All the published evidence, well, there's no, no peer-reviewed published evidence. The only evidence is on a preprint from the drug company uh, of their study, which it was, and it was only interim results from that study. But anyhow, what it showed is that in individuals who have risk factors for progression, it can help prevent hospitalisation in particular. The study wasn't powered to show the mortality benefit. There was a numerically lower number of deaths in the who were given sotrovimab, but um, you know, we're only talking sort of two or three um, deaths uh, in each arm uh, overall. So it wasn't um, certainly not that evidence isn't there yet, but, but it does appear to prevent hospitalization. The risk factors for progression were age over the age of 55, diabetes, chronic renal impairment, ischemic heart disease, and uh, I haven't got the full list in front of me, but they're, they're sort of the main ones. They excluded people who were immunosuppressed from that study. So, in fact, there's no data on people um, who have that as a risk factor for progression. Um, in other words, um, you know, people receiving chemotherapy, um, you know, solid organ transplantation, um, bone marrow transplantation, those patients weren't included in the study. So we don't have evidence for that group, although, you know, that's actually the group where we most want to give a drug to prevent progression. In fact, when, you know, the National Clinical Evidence Task Force considered the evidence for sotrovimab, they actually gave a recommendation to use it in that immunosuppressed group, not based on any hard evidence, but just based on the, you know, the principle of how the drug worked and, and, and whether or not that group would benefit from it. I should say also that the study excluded people that had been vaccinated. So um, the study only looked at unvaccinated people. And given that this is an antibody, um, if people have been vaccinated and, and responded to the vaccination, you would not expect that this drug would have any benefit in that group. And yeah, I say responded to vaccination because that immunosuppressed group may get vaccination and not respond to it. So the, um, the guidelines we're working off are that um, if you only meet the criteria for regression that were used in the study, then you have to be unvaccinated to qualify for the drug. Or, or not fully vaccinated, I should say, so not having received two doses. But if you're immunosuppressed, you, you can receive the drug regardless of your vaccination status. Um, Australia's purchased so far about 7,500 doses of citrovimab, um, and they've distributed 1,000 of those doses to New South Wales. Uh, we've used a couple of hundred in New South Wales so far. We've given it to about 20 or so patients um, at Westmead so far. So it's not a large number of doses, you know, we have available. If we gave it to everybody who met the criteria, we'd, you know, we could use Australia's supply in about a day. You know, practically it hasn't been sort of rolled out to everybody who could theoretically benefit from it because, you know, age over 55 is one of the criteria. So obviously if we gave it to everyone with covid over the age of 55, um, yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't go very far. I, I should say the other criteria is that they have to be within five days of illness onset. They do have to be symptomatic, but they have to be within five days of onset of symptoms and they uh, need to not be requiring oxygen. And, of course, being an antibody, it's likely only to be effective prior to um, the host developing their own antibody response, and that's the reason for giving it early um, prior to five days because antibodies tend to kick in not long after that um, anyway. 
so it's sort of, I guess, you know, what we we're talking about before about giving a sort of antiviral medication early on in illness to prevent um, progression. This is what, so we don't have an antiviral yet that we can give for that because, uh, like I said, really that kind of thing ideally would be an oral agent and we don't have one yet. Um, but this is, I guess, the next best thing. It's a, a passive immunotherapy and um, it's a single infusion, uh, which you give over half an hour. So currently um, we're identifying patients based on, um, sometimes we have patients who are nosocomial acquisition, so people who call COVID in hospital, they're in hospital for the comorbidity. You know, we think that's a good group to give it to um, because, you know, that's been because of that sort of nosocomial route of acquisition um, as a sort of damage control mechanism, if you like, we use sertraverimab to prevent their progression. So it's been given in that circumstance a few times. And other than that, it's really been given when uh, the treating specialists for people, particularly those who are immunosuppressed or have other chronic medical conditions, are notified that their patient has been diagnosed with COVID and they've contacted us and we've arranged the trophy made to be given there. So it's been a bit of a word of mouth and ad hoc arrangement um, who's been receiving citrovimab. We haven't actually actively gone out to find people to give it to because, as I said, we've very quickly overwhelmed the, the supply of it. But I think what we need to do is work out who out in the community is likely to benefit most and, and try and target them with the supplies that we do have. Um, so maybe it won't be, the criteria will probably be tighter or more um, uh, stringent than the ones um, for which um, the National Clinical Evidence Task Force have suggested. So, you know, it probably won't be everyone over the age of 55, for example, but if you're over the age of 55 and you have an additional risk factor or an additional two risk factors, um, and you haven't been vaccinated, then um, then maybe that's who we need to target to give it to. That hasn't quite been worked out yet. The way we do it for people who are out in the community, they go. We notify the patient transport people who go pick them up from home. They bring them to the hospital. Um, I think for the first couple, they were coming through ED because that was sort of the the main route into the hospital for people who had COVID. But we now have an arrangement where they can be met outside one of the entrances by security and escorted up to the K5 COVID admissions unit and receive the citrovimab there and then be escorted out again to the patient transport and taken home. So that, that's the process we have set up. It's still sort of being finalised because um, yeah, all of this has just become available in the last week or so. The other um, area where New South Wales is keen to roll citrovimab out to are the rural and regional areas and the Aboriginal community um, of Volcania, where there's a lot of cases. So that's even more of a logistical challenge to figure out how to how to um, give the drug there. Because it's an intravenous infusion, you know, some infrastructure is required. And also monitoring for anaphylaxis is important. So it's not thought that giving it in people's homes in a hospital in the home type arrangement is really um, the safest way to give it uh, because not that there's a huge risk of anaphylaxis but there has been some cases reported so that's uh, that's an important consideration. Thanks Dr O'Sullivan really appreciate that. I guess with all these patients with COVID coming COVID positive and are hypoxic that's when we really initiate all our therapies. Now uh, I've noticed that sometimes we see some I guess borderline cases where patients come in and they're not actually hypoxic and they look kind of clinically well, but there's a radiological evidence of pneumonitis. In this group of patients, is there a role in starting treatments early? And is there any evidence for that? I guess the problem is that it's not really, we don't have that granularity of evidence, you know, in those who are not hypoxic but had chest X-ray changes. For example, um, we don't have the data on that. I mean, the thing I guess that concerns me I mean, a lot, if you look hard, nearly everybody that comes into ED has an abnormal chest X-ray. It's, um, it's pretty pretty uncommon to see a normal chest X-ray in people presenting with COVID now. Obviously, there's a range of degrees of pneumonitis um, that we see. And, yeah, the thing that concerns me is, as I mentioned before, particularly with the dexamethasone, you know, that trend towards harm in those who are not requiring oxygen. And, that, you know, that's really what we've got to go on. So... I, you know, I think we do have to be careful in making sure that people do have that oxygen requirement before commencing treatment. Um, and I think we do sometimes pull the trigger a little bit early. Sometimes people get started on oxygen in the ambulance. Um, they're still sort of on it um, 
you know, during their ED stay and when they're admitted, but actually um, they come off it really quickly. And by the time we see them in the wards, they're not requiring oxygen, um, even just a, an hour or two later. You know, we've sometimes made the decision to start them on treatment in the meantime. And, and we, you know, most of the time they then complete the course in that scenario. So um, particularly with the shortage of remdesivir at the moment, we're now um, thinking about, um, you know, being a bit more stringent in terms of initiation of remdesivir, really giving a period of time to see which way they go. And if they clearly have an ongoing oxygen requirement when they get to the wards, um, then they'd be starting remdesivir then. Um, so we might we might sort of start to follow that path, particularly while we have the shortage of remdesivir, um, which hopefully will be relieved in a few days. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, in those who are not requiring oxygen, then yeah, we really don't want to, to start them on these treatments. And you do occasionally get those who uh, who are tachypneic, I mean, quite marked tachypnea, but they're compensating and they're, they they don't have low SATs. Um, but we, you know, they that tachypnea will often respond to some oxygen therapy. Uh, theoretically, you know, so the, the according to the studies, the benefit is those in in those. Um, receiving oxygen or requiring oxygen, it didn't specify that they needed to have that, they needed to be hypoxic um, uh, to receive that oxygen. So in other words, if there's an indication for oxygen and then that indication is tachypnea um, and they're clearly benefiting um, from oxygen, even though they didn't have low oxygen sats, <clears throat> then um, theoretically they, they could benefit from treatment as well. Although, yeah, again, we didn't have that granularity from the studies to know whether it's um, they were on oxygen because they were tachypneic or they were on oxygen because they were hypoxic. So at present for the severe COVID cases, we're using about six milligrams of dexamethasone, which is a relatively modest dose. I've come across at least one study, the CODEX trial, whereby they've used a dose of 20 milligrams a day and found significant improvements in terms of ventilator-free days and coming off ventilator. Do you foresee a future whereby we'd be titrating the dose of dexamethasone or is that no longer warranted since we've got all the other MIPS and MAPS? The, it wasn't clear what the rationale behind the dose choice was. Actually, if you look at the um, recovery study, they did actually use a weight-based dose, and I've forgotten milligrams per kilogram what it was, but but essentially once you were over 40 kilograms, you, you reached the maximum dose, which was six milligrams. And so that's why we just use six milligrams for everybody. Theoretically, if you're less than 40 kilos uh, and you're following the recovery trial treatment protocol, you would actually give lower than six milligrams than people that are less than 40 kilos, but we rarely see that. So we just give six milligrams for everybody. So it was a weight-based dose. So that's one thing. Yeah, and so there are studies, uh, and so I'm not familiar with the one that you mentioned, but um, I know that there are studies looking at different doses of, of, of steroids, and I think we will, we, you know, we will know more about that, and I'm sure in the future um, our dosing regimen probably will change because, as I said, it was, I think it was pretty arbitrary the, the dose that was chosen in the recovery study, which is what everyone's using now. And once we have data from other studies that used other doses, and particularly multiple studies, we'll probably be able to work that out. The other medication in which the dose, different doses have been looked at is baricitinib. So there's a study um, from Bangladesh that looked at eight milligrams of baricitinib rather than four, and um, it showed um, a, a benefit from eight. I mean, there's only one study and fairly small numbers, but again, um, that might be um, something if, if the evidence accumulates to, for higher doses of baricitinib that we might um, might end up doing that as well. I mean, apart from the ones that you mentioned, I, I haven't seen any others um, yet that have um, reported on other doses of dexamethasone. So currently we are just sticking with the six, but yeah, I'm sure it's likely to change as evidence accumulates. Just one last question, which is, I guess it's clear that we've got a specific population that we're initiating these medications on. How time critical is initiating perhaps not so much remdesivir, but in particular things like baricitinib in patients who present. And if it's going to be something that is relatively time critical, is there a role for empirically starting these medications in the emergency department based on like a pre-specified criteria in situations where we can't immediately or perhaps don't want to immediately call you guys and wake you up such as in the middle of the night? 
with the immunomodulatory treatment, those who are relatively early on in their illness who are just receiving a few litres by nasal prong oxygen to maintain their SATs, they are starting to get some immune-mediated pathology probably. But, um, yeah, so it, you know, it's not progressed as far. Those who are sort of going to need straight onto high-flow nasal prongs or uh, non-invasive ventilation from ED or getting mechanically ventilated, I, you know, I think it is it pretty... You want to get those drugs into them on the spot pretty much. But, you know, I'm comfortable with, you know, those who are not quite at that point, um, you know, making... a a more controlled decision about um, when to initiate them. And uh, and as I mentioned before, you know, sometimes we find people are only transiently having an oxygen requirement and they probably don't want to give the drugs to them. So I think you can make a case for those who are on low flow, one or two litres of oxygen um, to maintain their sets, to actually just wait and see how they go and, and we can decide on the ward whether to give the medication there. But, yeah, those who are requiring the higher levels of oxygen then it probably is good to get on and start it. They're going to need it. So probably the, the sooner you give it, the better in those who are sort of getting four litres or more by nasal prongs. And then, yeah, certainly, as I said, those who are getting um, high flow oxygen or non-invasive ventilation or, or clearly heading that way, then they should just start it as soon as possible. Thank you so much. And we've covered an enormous amount of information today. It's clear that there's probably plenty more that there is to learn, but at the same time, both of them, all of all of our guests have, have been gold mines of information. It's been really wonderful to have all of you. Ali, just to wrap up, do you want to give us your three take-home points for the paper? So it's basically the fact that we don't have a lot of hard evidence for the use of remdesivir, in particular when it comes to hard outcomes. And that a lot of the studies are basically, I guess, or low certainty evidence for most of them, despite the fact that we've had thousands of patients on them. And like I said, whether we will be getting a study just solely on remdesivir on its own in the future is highly unlikely, given that it's likely now to be combination therapies. And we'll be looking at syn the synergistic effects of these medications on clinical outcomes. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ali. And just, I guess, as a brief take-home point or two about the, the discussion that's been had, Essentially, for patients who are not on oxygen, we aren't starting steroids, we aren't starting immunomodulators or remdesivir. There may be a role for sotrovenib. I apologize if I didn't pronounce that correctly, but that's only in very select populations due to the limitations in availability. Patients who have an oxygen requirement are eligible for all three of the medications that I just mentioned. And we may consider swapping the baricitinib for tocilizumab in patients who require mechanical ventilation before baricitinib has been able to be started. Before we finish up, it's time for the best part of the show, Kit's Corner. Thank you, Shreyas. This pandemic has hit everyone hard, but look, Remaining positive, there are a few good things that have come out of it. And in my opinion, one such thing is the exposure of the general public to Auslan in the frequent press briefings or Australian Sign Language. And Auslan is an incredible language. It's highly visual, obviously, and often with subtleties and colloquialisms and dynamic change that's, that's unmatched. I wanted to share with you the sign, for instance, for COVID. It's a twisting of an open palm on the side of a clenched fist. And we'll put this in the show notes. While its origin is uncertain, it first really took hold on social media. And I have it on good authority that it colloquially represents a dual phenomenon. Firstly, to represent the crown of coronavirus, 
But secondly, it represents a similar action to the opening of a Corona beer. Yet another amazing Kit's Corner segment. I continue to be amazed that he manages to come up with this stuff month after month. So that concludes the final part of our COVID-19 special episode. Thank you so much, Ali, for doing such a great job of a very, very meaty article. And to Dr. O'Sullivan for all of the insights that you've been able to share on what is an extremely dynamic and evolving subject. And special thanks to Dr. Zhao, Professor Swaminathan, and Dr. Tadros, who have stuck with us for more than three hours through an extended recording session to get through all of this and provide us with this ex- excellent material. As always, all of the links to the papers will be in the show notes. And if you have any questions or comments, please get in touch at Club at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it and we can't wait to be back in your ears again next month. You save me from the past I love. You save me from the past I love. You save me from the past I love.